You're listening to Six for Summer, a radio book club created by the Prince George Public Library. Tune in to CFUR 88.7 FM to hear us discuss a new book each week while we explore what it means to be Canadian. This initiative is made possible by the Community Fund for Canada's 150th, a collaboration between the Prince George Community Foundation, the Government of Canada, and extraordinary leaders from coast to coast to coast. The Prince George Public Library is situated on the traditional territory of the Claitley Tanay, and we offer our gratitude for the land that we gather on. The following podcast has a trigger warning. The book being discussed is Breaking Away by Patrick O'Sullivan, in which he shares the details of his abusive upbringing. Some listeners may be sensitive to this topic. Hello out there, we're on the air, it's hockey night tonight. Tension grows, the whistle blows, and the puck goes down the ice. The goalie jumps and the players bump and the fans all go insane. Someone roars, Bobby scores at the good old hockey game. Oh, the good old hockey game is the best game you can name. And the best game you can name is the good old hockey game. To our very first episode of Six for Summer, a radio book club. My name is Patricia. I am the Adult Services Librarian at the Prince George Public Library. For this summer series, we'll be inviting community panelists and library staff to participate in a discussion about a different Canadian book and how it relates to Canadian identity. Our first episode today features Breaking Away by Patrick O'Sullivan, a harrowing memoir of his path to the NHL and the horrific abuse he suffered from his father. Before we begin the discussion, I want to issue a trigger warning for this episode as we work through some of the painful and abusive content of this book. There are a number of resources available in Prince George, and we encourage you to reach out if you need support. I'll now turn it over to our panelists and let them introduce themselves. I'm Nick Drzenovic, Director of Player Development for the Prince George Cougars. My name is Harjaz Graywall. I am a third-year medical student here in Prince George. I'm Amy. I am the Communications Coordinator at the Prince George Public Library. Great. Thanks, everyone. So with that, let's launch into our discussion. I guess I'll start. When we were selecting the books for this, uh, for this podcast, I was really adamant that we include this book. Um, and I would say that it's not something that we would regularly include as a book club novel, but I just felt that it really explores a side of, of hockey, which um, Canadians love so much, that is maybe a little bit darker. And I'm interested to hear what everyone's experiences um, were reading the book and how you felt when you read it. Well, I, I really liked the book myself. I know absolutely nothing about hockey, and I'll be upfront about that. But I still really enjoyed the book for the personal story of Patrick O'Sullivan. It bothered me that it needed a stronger editor. Uh, there's lots of grammar mistakes in the book that are very disconcerting as you're trying to read it. But the story itself is quite captivating. Yeah, I, uh, I'll be honest, going into the book, I had a little uh, predetermined outlook on Patrick. I had played against him quite a bit in the minors. So I, I felt a little bit different about him going into the book. And then by the end, I was 180'd the other way with him. So, you know, he's been through some tough times and, you know, it was hard to read at certain sections. 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, I, I thought it was well-written in the sense that it was, I liked how it organized um, the way it was in that sense. But yeah, there was quite a few grammar errors. But um, the story is really important because this is probably more prevalent than we think. Like, right, mm -hmm. we might think there's just one hockey player that's going through this. But um, like he outlines, even outside of hockey, other sports or other skills, even just with school, right? There might be parents that push their kids a little too far. Now, this might be the most extreme case of it, but I think it's an important story to share. And, and I'm sure it's something that people might have felt because they've probably seen it to a lesser extent, whether they're at the rink or in another place. And to kind of see the impact it had on him as he progressed through his life is, is, is quite a unique story. And I, I enjoyed learning about that. Yeah, as I was reading, I really thought about all the times I've I've been in a hockey rink, like growing up and um, working in the Western Hockey League, and I just, you know, it makes you ask yourself, like, you, everyone's seen those parents at the hockey rink, and like, mm -hmm. you know, what's going on in those houses? So it's, yeah, it was really a disturbing account, I thought. And I know we've chosen this book because... You know, it brings up Canadian identity. And of course, hockey is a large part of Canadian identity. But I think child abuse might be part of the Canadian identity as well. I have an article here in front of me. Don't worry, I, I won't read it. From the National Post. And this is from April 22nd, 2014 by Sarah Bosveld. And the heading is, One third of Canadians have suffered child abuse, highest rate in the Western provinces, study says. And this study is from the Canadian Medical Association Journal that found that 32% of Canadians have experienced some sort of abuse in childhood. Yeah, which I think is, you know, throughout the book, O'Sullivan, you know, asks, like, why didn't anyone step in? And I think that's a really valid question, but I also think that people are afraid or they, you know, they second guess themselves about how serious things are. Yeah, I find it, I, I put myself in the situation of the coaches and the other parents and tried to think about what I would have done. And it's, it's such a fine line between encroaching on their space and what they do and how they handle stuff or how families handle things in a competitive sport like hockey. But... I think there was signs that someone should have stepped in, and I think it's unfortunate for Patrick that he was in an era where the old-school hockey mentality of a rah-rah, tough-tough, and, and that's unfortunate for him and his dad tried to imply that on him, but I think times have changed, and growing up now, if you do see those signs, you can step in because of the awareness we are creating. Mm -hmm. I, I do think there's like better mental health supports in place for, for hockey players now than there were when he was playing hockey. Like right off the, off the top of my mind, I think of the Caribou Cougars and what they're doing with MindRight. Um, and that's a player-led initiative, right? To, to ensure that players have mental health supports in place and also to ensure that coaches and other hockey staff have some knowledge about how their, how their language and um, attitudes towards their players can, can impact those players. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think we need to backtrack a little bit for those listeners who haven't read the book. So this is the, the story written, of course, from Patrick's point of view about his hockey journey, but also his family journey. The book spans from 1990 to 2015. And uh, he has a, a father who is very determined that he makes it into the NHL because the father, John O'Sullivan, himself is a well, I guess, failed hockey player. He made it to the minor leagues, but not to the NHL. And he's determined that his son will be the trophy son and live out his dreams. And he abuses his son 
quite badly. Um, and it's interesting, I, I thought it was very interesting how hockey was the catalyst for the abuse, but it was also the salvation. Uh, it was his way out and escape from his father. Mm -hmm. I wonder if, how you guys feel about the story, if you think this is a story about a hockey parent or if you think this is a story about an abusive parent that's just set with a hockey background. My experience in organized sports is, is pretty limited to hockey. So is this like a hockey problem or is this a sports problem? I, I, think, it's, I think it's a mental illness problem with John. I mean, mm, it could have been any point. sport. Yeah. It could mm -hmm. have been any, anything somewhat competitive I think John would have struggled with. Yeah. I mean, there's a difference between being a competitive, involved parent to, to John. So I think John took it to the next level, and he's not normal, although I have heard of other cases like that with players that I have played with and against. That being said, I don't think it's a norm of hockey. Mm -hmm. I think it's a mental illness thing. Yeah. Yeah, and I think a prime example in the book is even his older, Patrick's older sister, she was like top 10 in Michigan in tennis, and then it looked like that John had a similar mentality with her. So I, I'm sure it would have been anything. I mean, I don't know how young his younger sister was, but I'm sure if she was involved in anything, I'm sure she would have felt a little bit too. Now, obviously, John was a passionate hockey guy, so he probably focused more of his energy on Patrick. But, I mean, just the, the little bit about his sister and how he wanted her to get a tennis scholarship mm -hmm. and then how she never played once um, they separated as a family. So there's that aspect of it as well. And, and yeah, I think Nick brings up a really good point that it's, it's more of a mental health thing and that, you know, I think hockey and his son was just more of an outlet for him to kind of uh, uh, express his, his mental health issues through the abuse. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about Kathy O'Sullivan for a bit? Um, this is the mother of Patrick. Um, I felt that uh, she played a significant role, uh, as passive as she may appear, in the, the storyline. What did you think of Kathy? I didn't like I didn't like how Patrick was all over her immediately. Like it, it was demonizing her. Yes, like he immediately was like no background. Just kind of gave it to us that she never stepped up for him, and I, I wasn't a fan of that in a sense because she I'm assuming had it pretty tough. <laughs> I'm assuming that wasn't uh, an easy an easy relationship for her in any sense. So that being said, after it came out. Uh, when I was finished that part of that section of the book, I thought to myself that, you know, it's, she should have stepped up and she should have done something and she, she saw it firsthand. Right. So yeah, I didn't, I wasn't a big fan of her by the end. And at the start, I feel like he was being hard on her. So yeah, I think she should have stepped up. Yeah. I, I kind of felt that way too, but I also, I struggle with, because this is a memoir, like I just, I struggle with, you know, could she have stepped up? Like, what right. what would have the what would the results have been for her? And you know, like, but isn't it natural in the like a mother's instinct to protect her young? Don't you think she she could have or should have stood up to John and say, "You're not treating my son this way." I think it's easier for us to say that she should have done that if we haven't. And I can't speak for all of us, but having not in experienced that. I don't know. I feel like there wasn't enough information about her role in the family. Yeah, fair like enough. it was just a very broad section of the book that just told her, told uh, the story of what she did and her very minor involvement. So yeah. it's, it's hard to make a judgment on what she should have or could have done. Right. But uh, what do you think uh, about the incident that happened between her and Patrick in 2009 um, when he told her, you know, I'm not going to be your open checkbook. 
uh, he's now in the NHL, um, and you know she's phoning him and saying, "Oh, the house, the kitchen needs renovating, and I need to pay for this and that and the other." And she just phones him up whenever she needs money. Right. Wonder what led up to that. Like, how yeah. did that start? How did you know? And it says that it was like repairs, and it, and it needed to take care of the the sisters and yeah and so forth. But I, I just. And yeah, yet when he went home right. to visit, those repairs weren't done. Yeah, I know. The kitchen wasn't yeah. renovated, you know, whatever. The and he does say she came from a rich family or well-to-do family. Maybe she's yeah. just used to just taking money and doing what she wants with it and spending it on on whatever she wants. So I, I found her character the most interesting, um, next to Patrick, of course, for what was not said about her. Yeah. I think you're right. It was quite sketchy and kind mm-hmm. of glossed over what her role was. And he was quite damning toward his mother. But I felt that she was um, quite passive aggressive. And she was both complicit in the abuse by not stepping up. But she was also victimized herself because she had to live with this guy. Right. And I also felt that she was one of these classic women who rely on men for their money all their lives. I mean, she was daddy's girl, it sounded like. She was the only child. And he makes reference to when his parents met that she was probably quite spoiled. Um, <clears throat> she goes from her father's house to her husband's house. And her husband was quite um, lackadaisical when it came to work and was starting new jobs all the time with capital that her father supplied him right. for sandwich shops and whatnot. So in a sense, she was still living with da- on daddy's money. And then as soon as her son makes it to the NHL and he's making really good money, guess what? Now she relies on her son for support. Right. I mean, he said in the, uh, in the book that if she, had, if she had said that I really want to go back to school, I want to do better, you know, I still have two girls at home, et cetera, he said, I would have supported that. But just to be an open checkbook? No, thanks. Right. I, I can't really blame the guy. Right. The mom thing was interesting for me because as we're learning about him being like eight, nine, ten, there's almost no mention of her at the start. And then I think the first time he kind of goes off on her is when he talks about that one, uh, the one game, I believe, when she's in the van with him. Because mm-hmm. uh, usually it was just him and his dad. And then it was yes. one trip that his mom had come. And that was when he first talked about her. And then she's mentioned a little bit and he talks about the phone call where he essentially cut her off financially. And then so obviously he's writing this book after all this has happened. So I think... It, it, it's almost as if he had this preconceived notion that um, that she was kind of complicit with the abuse. She didn't help him the way he expected his mother to. And then after the fact, when he cut her off, that she decided to not reach out back to him. So I think he was already pretty upset when he started writing the book. And I didn't think he really gave his mom a fair shake at all because, um, you know, I, I can't put myself in a mother's position. But... I think he was pretty accurate when he mentioned that he thinks his mom was happy when they would leave out on road trips because she didn't have to deal with John. Right. And so I, I think it would have been tough for her to confront her husband. It would have been tough for her to step in, like let's say if she was right there when the abuse was happening. But the way I looked at it was she should have contacted someone outside. Like right. she, whether they were gone and she spoke to a police officer, like not called 911, just like spoke to someone or reached out to a resource like, hey, look, this is what's happening. What can I do? I'm kind of scared of my husband or whether she contacted her parents. Like, I think she could have done something. I think she had enough time to do that. But yeah, it was interesting. And I thought he was pretty harsh on her. But again, I've never suffered abuse. And so, yeah, I don't know how your feelings would be your mother in that instance. I, I feel like the whole book was like that. Like, the whole book was very rainy gray, right? Like, he, everyone kind of was perceived 
poorly and for good reason. I get I get it, but it's mostly John. It should be should have been John that was the lightning bolt in the rainstorm, right? Like um, the coaches, for example, were also painted with a very gray, terrible feeling chapters, and it was just like. I, I just got that feeling through the whole book, like you had said, was that everyone was out to get him. And I get that it's a terrible situation. I'm not trying to take away from Patrick at all, but that's the feeling I got throughout the book. So when you're referring to coaches, you mean when Patrick's now an adult? Yes. And he goes back to his coaches and teammates and said, yes. why didn't you do anything? Right. Or did you expect yes. or suspect abuse? You know what I thought was interesting that... Um, when he goes back and, and starts questioning people from his childhood and, and his youth about, you know, what was happening with him, it seems like there's quite a few situations where it was actually like other players on his team that were the ones that were going to their coaches or asking him, like, are you okay? Like, right. you know, or I think he's not okay. Yeah. And like for people that have been involved in organized sports and been on teams, um, in that situation, can you see yourself doing the same thing, like going to your coach or, or, or going to someone else and saying, you know, I think this is not okay? Like, do you know your teammates well enough to, to be aware of when something's wrong? I think when you're young in sports, you really just idolize your parents, and it's hard, right? So if, if a boy goes home and tells his dad that, you know, I think Patrick's being abuse or he had bruises all over and dad says don't talk about it you're not going to talk about it because mm-hmm. that's what dad says but I found it very interesting and it really hit me was at the end of the book when he was talking to an old coach I can't remember the name and he said uh, Patrick how'd you get that black eye and he said what do you think or how do you think yeah and I'm like "Ooh, that was you know mm-hmm. that was a big one for me so and it's at the tough. same time, he did talk to uh, another coach. Sorry, this is Patrick as an adult going back to talk to a coach. And the coach said, when I asked you whatever happened, you know, the bruises on your body, you lied. You covered up. And I think that's a natural inclination for children to do too. Mm-hmm. You want to protect your, your family. Sure. So, I mean, it, I think I, I, I was a bit squeamish that whole last third of the book when he went back to talk to his coaches and his teammates as uh, now that he's an adult because I felt that in a way he was uh, it was an exercise in humiliation for some of them uh, I mean he was trying to force a confession it right. sounded like to me maybe that's too strong language but almost like well you know accusatory sure. why didn't you do something you were the adult you saw the bruises on my body why didn't you do something and I, I just felt it was squeamish uh, the whole time because what could they do? I mean, okay, so they phoned the cops on, on uh, his dad or they phoned social services. And if it turned out that, they, that they, um, social services arrived and John is long gone, how does that protect Patrick? I mean, I, I think it's, it's a pretty sticky situation as a coach what if you are wrong? What if it's uh, he did he actually did fall down the stairs accidentally? What if you're wrong? Right. Then John and people like John can come after you and, and sue you. Right. So I can see there's reluctance there. Do you you don't agree with that, Amy? I know we had kind of discussed this before we, you know, in the last few weeks while we've been um, reading the book, and I feel like things couldn't have gotten worse for Patrick. No. And so when nobody 
reached out to help him. Like, he just lived this terror for longer than he needed to. Yeah. Well, he did mention that he was worried that it could get worse. Yeah, he you thought know, his that was one, going to kill him. Yes, yeah. so yeah. at that point he was fearful for his life. And that all being said, I feel like we have to express in this podcast as well that you're not alone if you are going through something. Right. Like yeah. there is more resources nowadays. It's not like that anymore. So right. that needs to be, this is a story from the 90s to 2015, but yeah. it has changed and we have made strides in a great direction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I was just going to say, I thought the, the thing that was really unfortunate was him is that he had almost no relationship with his teammates. Um, he didn't bill it. He didn't even ride the bus with the no. team. Um, because of his father. Yeah, because yeah. of his father. I mean, like, when I was playing hockey growing up, my parents would drive on their own. I rode on the bus with all my friends. And that's how everyone else did, right? We had a bus for the team. And, and most of the parents would come, especially, like, if it was Christmas time when people had time off. But they drove separately. So I found it weird that he was, like, 13 years old playing junior hockey with guys. He said he had a line mate who was seven years older than him. So it would be hard to form a relationship with someone anyways. But he didn't spend enough time yeah. for them to get to really know him. So that was unfortunate, too, because... I mean, if you can kind of get to know a guy a little bit, you can sometimes sense when something's off. And I think they just didn't have that instinct around him. No. Right? And so mostly it seemed like his teammates just picked up on the bruises. Yeah. Yeah. They couldn't pick up on a changing character. They couldn't pick up on a mood or anything like that. Like they did say, like, sometimes he wasn't really one to celebrate. Again, they might have just thought, well, he doesn't celebrate. He scores all the time. But little do they know that, you know, he's he's just, that he's never going to please his dad. That it doesn't matter if he scores. So... Uh, that was a real unfortunate thing. I also I found it weird that a coach or a general manager didn't step in and say, like, hey, your son's riding on the bus. Like, that's part of the team development. That's part yeah. of the team bonding. Yeah. Because, yeah. like, even outside of junior at this point, like, kids were 12, 13, 14, they're going to be riding the bus. And, you know, if a parent said, oh, I want to take them with me, um, the coach probably be like, well, no, you know, we kind of find this a part of the team this yeah, is part of the team, team bonding, bonding. Yeah. yeah like i can't imagine yeah i yeah. can't imagine in like major midget or like any junior hockey a gm or a coach allowing a player to drive with their parents i, I felt like, the same way in the book until the pictures at the end i think he was that good i think the coaches were just happy to have him and he was that good on the ice that they're like okay well whatever yeah. yeah. Like dad, if dad wants to take him, if he's going to perform for us tonight, that's fine. And to be clear, he wanted to be with his teammates right. on the bus, yes. right? It was his father and his father's sense of control over Patrick's life right. that prevented him from being on the bus. Well, and then his father could tear a strip off him in the van and make him chase right. the van. And, yeah. And run so beside it on the highway. Sure. Yeah. Well, and sorry, just to, not to beat that to death, but you know, the other thing is, I thought about it when reflecting was, you know, those teams don't have that much money either. So they might have just oh. been happy, like, we're not paying a billet family. Oh. We're not covering his meals. Never thought of that. Right? And so they might have also looked at it in that sense, which was another thing I thought maybe to justify it. But I still feel like it might have not happened, especially when he mentions that they would play back-to-back days and he yeah. would go back and then come back again. Yeah, that was, I think, the only time the team ever suggested, like, why doesn't he just stay the night with one of the players? But, right. yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's kind of unique that the whole way that happened that way. Mm-hmm. I think another reason why this uh, abuse was allowed to go on for as long as it did is the fact that even if one of those coaches had the initiative to phone the police or phone social services, the father had such a peripatetic lifestyle that those kids moved all the time. I mean, they were hopscotching back and forth from Canada to the United States and back to Canada. It would, he would be really hard to track down. Yeah, and I think even if you called social services in that 
on John. He would have, he was a good talker. He was just, it sounded like he was a smooth talker and he was very charismatic yeah. and, and it sounds like Patrick would have stuck up for him as well. So, you know, maybe that's the vibe the coaches and the yeah. mom even got out of that. But I, th- I think like a lot of antisocial people, John can be extremely charming when sure. he wanted something to go his way. It seemed that way anyways in the book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of want to go back to just the title of the book, which is Breaking Away, and it's described as a um, harrowing true story of resilience, courage, and triumph. But I didn't... That's not how I f- felt about this book. Like, I didn't think it was a story of triumph. Like, for me, this was a story of loss. Sure. Like, he lost out on, on the chance to be a child. Um, he lost out on basically all his family relationships. Uh, and then ends up losing out on a career that could have maybe been very successful. Yeah. yeah, I think he mentions that at the end when he says, I have a loving family. Like, he has two boys that he loves more than the game, and there's more, that's the triumph, I think. And it was very, it was touched on very shortly at the end of the book, and it, was, and it yeah. wasn't really explained too much, the triumph part of it. It was mostly all the other stuff, but yeah. I think in regards to the triumph, he has two boys and a wife and yeah. happily and married. Yeah, and happily so. married. I think the triumph might come in another 20 years. We'll see what he does with his life. Because I find the most um, interesting part about Patrick's story is, okay, the milk's been spilt. This bad stuff happened to you. So what are you going to do about it now that you're a man, now that you've gone to counseling, now that you have this loving, supportive family that you've married into? What are you going to do with that? And I feel that he will only triumph if he is able to put the past in the past and get on with his life. He has to, like, I don't, I didn't feel at the end of the book that he was at peace with himself, that he hasn't forgiven his parents, which I think is part of the grieving process. He has to come to a point in his life where he doesn't have to necessarily forget, but he has to forgive to free himself not to let his parents off the hook, but to free himself as a person and to get on with his life, that um, to leave the past in the past. I mean, we all have stuff we're carrying around, emotional baggage, every one of us, right? No one has a cakewalk through life. And I think that that will be the triumph. If he is able to really put this in the past, learn from it for sure, obviously not parent the way he was parented, but that's yet to come. I, I, the analogy I always use is like a car window. The front, the front windshield is the front windshield's really big, and the rearview mirror is really small. So mm. look at the rearview mirror to learn from it. But the front windshield's a lot bigger, right? So yeah, it's a good that's, analogy. That's what I think he's trying to do. Yes. But I still follow him on social media, and and all of his social media stuff is still a little bit rainy and dark, and it's like yeah. everything's still a little bit pessimistic. And yeah. And maybe he'll come around, like you said, in 20 years will be the triumph, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think maybe the process of writing the book, too, um, Yeah, cathartic. you know, maybe was cathartic. But he does describe himself several times throughout the book as being a hostage or being held hostage. And to some extent, like he still is, right? Yeah. Being held hostage sure. by, his, by his history. And I, I can appreciate that when he sought counseling in, I think it was Santa Monica, somewhere in yeah. California, that he was diagnosed with PTSD. And he was told by one of the psychologists that this is something that you're going to have to live with for the rest of your life. And so be it. Now he's got coping mechanisms that he knows, oh, this is a trigger for me. 
this is why I'm reacting this way. I know I sleep badly because of my PTSD, but now that he has these tools, I'm hoping that he'll be able to capitalize on them and, like I say, put the rest of his story in the past. And I think it'll take a long time, like that a soccer long, story long at the end. Time. Sophie yeah. hadn't even heard about and and yeah. you know, throwing the soccer cleats out the window and you yeah. know, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff will come up. And when his sons come of age, it's going to be interesting especially if they're interested in hockey. I know he won't be the hockey dad his father was, that's given, but what kind of person sure. would he be? Or if there is a John in the crowd. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's pretty hard to keep that door shut if you have um, childhood trauma, um, especially if there is something that triggers mm-hmm. something for you, that it bursts the door open wide, and then, wow, right. all this emotional stuff comes right. rushing in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that's that's the unfortunate part about abuse. Is I think I think it mentions it really early in the book. He said it's a gift that keeps on giving um, when yeah. he talks about sharing the story with his wife. And and it you know unfortunately part of it's going to pass on his kids. Not saying he's going to be an abusive father, but the fact that if they want to play hockey, um, that he he might not be interested, or might not support it. I mean, to have a father who played in the NHL should be a bonus. Yes. But it's it's probably not going to be a bonus for his kids because he may choose to not be involved at all. Yeah, he may choose to to stay away from the rink. Perhaps it's his wife just going. Um, he's probably gonna have a tough time dealing with that. Mm-hmm. In that sense, so I mean, it's it, it's difficult. Like the one thing that I thought of when I was reading about it is like we get taught a little bit about generational trauma with First Nations individuals. Yes. Right. And so residential schools have been closed for a really long time, but it's like the effects are still being felt now. And so unfortunately, like I feel like as much as as much as he'll do his best to pick up on his triggers and cope and move on, that it's going to have some sort of effect. Like Nick mentioned, oh, if absolutely. there's a John in the stands, like how is he going to react? So like, unfortunately, it's going to affect his kids a little bit. And I don't even know if it's, if it's possible for him to fully triumph, to fully get through, to, to fully, you know, just be a regular dad to his kids. There's going to be things that he's going to have t- trouble with. Like I was thinking to myself, like I've never really suffered abuse, but I, I did have a teacher in elementary that if you were misbehaving, she took her meter stick and hit it on your desk. And so let's just say hypothetically, you know, one of Patrick's kids has something like that. Like, how is he going to feel? Like, is he going to go explode on that teacher? Right. Um, like there's just, you know, there's so many things I was thinking, like it's, it's going to impact his children and so forth. So you know, the unfortunate thing about abuse is that maybe you can't ever really move on. I mean, you got to hope he can. I'm sure writing this book really helped, but I just feel like there's always going to be at least a part of it that's going to hang on. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I do too, but I think it would be a real shame if he continues to be defined by his past sure. rather than using that as a stepping stone to becoming a better man. Yeah, yeah exactly. I guess the triumph wouldn't be, it would be triumph in his shoes. It wouldn't be triumph in right. Bill Gates' kids. Yeah. Right. So it's yeah. it's a different type of triumph for yeah. him. Yeah. We kind of touched on this a bit. And um, Nick, you said that there is more support for kids in terms of mental health and stuff when they're playing hockey. Uh, did you guys find that those resources were available to you when you were playing hockey, Nick, or when you were playing um, soccer, Harges? Yeah, or- I did. Like, I felt like perhaps it wasn't a formal form of support. But I always felt like there was someone I could reach out to, whether it was just a teammate, whether it was someone involved with the team. I think it's hard sometimes to approach your head coach or someone in a position, but you know, you might have a decent relationship with an assistant or, or with like your training staff. There's always various adults around in that situation. So yeah, I, I mean, 
it's so hard to put myself in someone else's shoes because I never had to go through that. But I feel like the resources are abundant. And I, I think hockey is, is big now. You know, just even in Prince George to have the mind right thing. And, and then obviously with the Vancouver Canucks, after what happened, unfortunately, with Rick Rippon, right? They have their website and, and what they've established. I think it's mindcheck.ca. Yeah. Um, so, there, you know, there is, there's a slow transition. But, you know what, it's not going to be easy. You're not going to want to have it up front. You're not going to want everyone to know. Um, that's where I felt like, again, if Patrick had had a close teammate on the team, that would have helped. So I think it's easy to go to a peer or to kind of go to someone on the periphery. And, yeah, that's, that's my I think, uh I think it's gotten better, and I'm in a unique situation that Patrick and I are close in age. He's two years older than I am. But growing up, we were in a raw, raw hockey environment. It was... I've had a coach tell me when I was injured on the bench that would you rather die on the bench or on the ice with your friends? What? And it's like, that's the mentality. And that's what happens in hockey. Not anymore. It's not that way anymore. Oh. So that's the way it was in the 90s when there wasn't help. It was raw, raw, tough it out, yeah. figure it out, grow up. And now it's changed, right? So I think my second or third year in the WHL, I, uh, we had a psychologist that was available. So it was very like available, passive, like if you need it, it's here, but you don't have to use it. So it wasn't forced down your throat. And that carried on into pro in basically the exact same standpoint. Actually, that guy was a pro psychologist. He just came down and helped out the Cougars. But it's, it's, it's a resource for the players and it was a resource for us, but you can't force it on the guys because these hidden secrets, you can't, it can't be broadcasted to everybody. Do you think there's still, to some extent, um, in hockey, this mentality of toughen up or don't be soft? Because I feel like, um, you know, I didn't work in the Western Hockey League for very long. I was there for about four years. But I still feel like there was, to some extent, still that idea of, you know, don't be soft. Yeah, it's huge. It's it's still huge and it's a tough it's a crazy tough sport. I watch the playoffs and I get chills watching it just because you look at these guys literally pushing it to the limit. You'll see guys bleeding with broken faces and still be playing. And yeah. I and I love that. I find that that's so respectable. It's like it's competitiveness to a whole new level. That being said, coaches, staff, they need to be careful on how hard they push these guys. They need to know their players. I've been through that with my injuries that I don't want to talk about too much, but I've been through that uh, where no one stuck up for me and I battled through it when I shouldn't have. And you mean you played when you were injured? Yeah, very injured. So I, I, when, so I had went through that. So when I was that injured, I had hoped my coach would stick up for me and see that I was that injured. That being said, I toughed it out. I lived through it, and that was the hockey mentality. That being said, there is resources now. Yeah. Right? In the 90s, Patrick didn't have those resources. Yeah. So have things changed that much in the hockey world? Um, because I find an interesting subculture is the hockey parent. Um, I've been to a couple of my nephew's games when he was much younger, you know, 17, 18 years old. And I remember one in particular... Uh, the woman on my left in the stands was so atrocious. I, I just couldn't believe, one, what was coming out of her mouth, and two, her body language. And I just thought, these are just teenagers playing hockey. This is not the NHL. 
I, I just was gobsmacked. Does that still happen? Yeah, I mean, I think I might have a, a you know, a funny story. It was was when I was playing Major Midget, we were in the league finals. We were in Vancouver playing against uh, the Giants. It was in Burnaby. And the funny thing was my dad was in the stands and, and he saw, I forget, Paul Reinhardt. And so my dad wanted to go say hi to Paul Reinhardt because he played in the NHL and, you know, he thought it'd be kind of cool to go say hi to him. And his son Sam was on, on the Giants Vancouver team. And so while my dad kind of walked over just to say hi to Paul, there was a parent on the Giants team who actually ended up calling their coach in the middle of the game like multiple times because he wanted his son to have more ice time. And then, in, so obviously the coach isn't answering. He probably might not even have his phone on him. But then, so he's re- leaving like these harrowing messages, right? With a bunch of four-letter words. And and so, yeah, I, I, 100% it's still there. I mean, it's in Prince George. It's in it's in Cornell. It's in Vanderbilt. Like, it's everywhere. That parent is still there at some age group. So the, the John O'Sullivan's of the world um, can still rat out their kid Color kid, all kinds of names, and nothing is done. Coaches don't say a word. The refs don't say a word. Is that true? I think in minor hockey that that over the past probably decade that that attitude like is less acceptable, and that you could be banned from games yeah. for they, for behaving they've, like they've that. They've made it more aware. They've put up parent signs. And yeah, I think they have parent meetings and stuff now that they're aware that if they act such as John did, Mm -hmm. that they will be removed from the arena and investigated and so be it. But the awareness was the big stepping stone for everyone to know the signs of what's happening. So when Patrick, as an adult, goes back and asks some of his coaches, why didn't you do anything when I was being abused, um, some of his coaches said, well, um, when your father was getting quite vocal in the stands, it was always directed to you, not to the other kids on the team. And so they turned a blind eye and let it go and just thought, oh, John's a wacko, and let him verbally abuse his son the way he did. Um, so do you think that today it, hockey parents are more tolerated if the abuse that they're inflicting is just toward their own child as opposed to the team itself or the coach? Yeah, I think if it's at the team, you're going to ruffle a lot of feathers around the arena, right? So if it's at least just at your son, I say at least in the most heartfelt way possible for Patrick, but at least if it's at your the own your own son, it's the other parents will go, well, he's just trying to make him better. But I still think John was way over the line. And I haven't even seen that or heard of anything like that before. So. Mm-hmm. I think maybe this is an interesting time to kind of start talking about how this book relates to Canadian identity and this like national fervor that people have for the sport of hockey, right? Like we have all these um, teams that are basically making money off of teenagers. So to some extent, if Patrick's playing awesome uh, in his games and he's one of the most talented players on the team, that has financial benefits for, for the organization, right? Yeah, but that's an economy. I feel like if anyone does well at their job, the, the guy at the top benefits, right? So if you have a really good worker, obviously the, the owner's going to be very happy about that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> that being said, you know, these players that play in the top junior league in Canada do get great opportunity. They're under the spotlight. They're treated really well. Do, these, do all these junior teams make money? No, and that's a huge lawsuit that's going on right now that yeah. we shouldn't talk about too much, but uh, 
yeah, Patrick was sought after because of his ability on the ice, and obviously owners want that, right? They mm-hmm. want to win games and fill the stands. Uh, well, both of you men played hockey. Um, so did your parents have expectations that you'd be a Vancouver Canuck someday, even when you were six, seven, eight years old? Well, uh, you know, for me, my parents were immigrants, so I think they were just happy that I was doing something in my free time, honestly. You know, no, I don't think they had any expectation in that sense, but the one thing was for sure that the fact that they were investing a lot of money, a lot of the time, a lot of their energy, that I had to work hard and that, you know, there there was no wasting their time, there was no wasting their money, so there was that expectation. Now, it wasn't results-based, it's not like I had to end up at this level, but there was an expectation that I was going to work hard, that, you know, if I, if they sent me to that hockey school for a week, that, you know, I wasn't going to dog it, right? Because they took the time off and so forth. So it was that. And, and I think my parents are happy now because, you know, it instills a different level of work ethic in people. And, you know, the big thing that I think people talk about, I think there's even that commercial that Canadian Tire made is that, you know, really when you're playing sports as a kid, you're not, you know, there's a very small percentage that make it, but really you're getting your life skills at a young age. You know, you're learning work ethic, you're learning how to work in a team, you're learning how to deal with superiors, learning how to deal with peers. So I think they're happy at the end of the day that I learned that and I gained those life skills. How old were you when you started? I started playing hockey when I was six. Yeah. So a bit of a late start compared to most people, but yeah. Well, that's a late start, is it? Yeah, I started seven, and that's really late. Yeah. Um, my dad, same same thing. My dad's from Croatia. I was an immigrant, and my mom's from here, but uh, no hockey background whatsoever. And I didn't even really have too much of an interest in hockey until um, grade one. Um, I had a friend that said, you should sign up, because we played street hockey together a lot, and he had said that I should try ice hockey. But Did you ba- know how to skate? Actually, it, I had rollerblades, and I, I was able to skate the first time I put skates on. So I, I was always quite athletic, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, I was able to skate. I couldn't stop. I remember my first time was at the Spruce Kings Hockey School, and I just plowed right into the pile of kids because I, I didn't know how to stop myself. <laughs> but uh, my parents' expectation, it was it was perfect. I, looking back on his unique situation because my dad couldn't skate. My dad knew nothing about hockey. And, and I don't mean that in a bad way at all, but he would always ask me, did you work hard? Yep. Did you have fun? Yep. Okay. That's it. And that, that was it. That's a good. Yeah. And that was exactly it. He gave me all the opportunity in the world, traveling places. He would drive me everywhere and it was, but it was nothing related on the ice. That was my doing my coaches, that stuff. He, he really implemented integrity and, and hard work into, into what I brought onto the ice. Amy, did you play hockey? I did not. So we we are running out of time here, but I wanted to come back to um, to something we we sort of started to talk about, which was like the Canadian identity piece. And Nick, having played, have, you've played in the United States and yep. Canada. Yep. So do you find that there is a difference in terms of like hockey or sport? Hockey fans, I guess. Um, yeah. So it's unique. It, it, I read that uh, question that you had sent, the questionnaire you had sent us through the email, and uh, it said Canadian identity regarding this book. And and I felt borderline offended because it's like, no, hold on. We, we It's a sport that we excel at and that we do because we're in winter months. But if you go down to Texas, football is pushed 10 times, 100 times harder than hockey is here. Yeah. And I'm sure if you crossed paths with some of those parents, you'd run into a lot of stories down in Texas. And I'm not calling out Texas. Texas is great. I live there. Texas people are awesome. 
That being said, Europe might be the same with soccer. Yeah. You know, the Middle East might be the same with cricket. I don't know. It's just because we're at the forefront with hockey here, this is what we experience here. Yeah. But sports together, there's no difference. It might be even worse down in the United States. So I guess maybe this is an opportunity to ask you about Patrick after he was kind of freed of his dad's eyes just on him all the time he just he describes that feeling of being able to play with all without all that pressure and what a really positive experience that was for him and from your perspectives like what are the great things about going through this hockey system well I guess you know you can always take your mind off things people always talk about wanting to live in the moment the beauty of a hockey game is you live in the moment for three hours um you don't really get that anywhere else in life and, and that's with most sports at least that's how I felt um you get to live in the moment and yeah I mean you know for Patrick in that sense it was huge because he didn't actually really get to live in the moment he had to deal with his dad's ear or his dad's voice in his ear uh the whole game so you know he describes how the first time he kind of got to play overseas um, when his dad wasn't there, I think at U18s, perhaps it was. So, you know, I, you know, I, I, I couldn't even imagine. You know, he finally got the regular experience of someone playing hockey at that age. You know, at that level, finally everyone gets that when they're like five or six. But, you know, it took forever for him to finally have that fully enjoyment, fun experience, live in the moment, enjoy the game. Yeah, I find it a little bit different than uh, than what Patrick had said. I, I think you're always got eyes on you. I mean, if, you, if you're working your way up, there's always some sort of eyes on you. And you, if you don't realize that, then you're not going to make it. I mean, there's scouts as low as 13 years old right now, 12 years old. So you've got eyes on you steady. You know, it's a matter of how you deal with it and the pressure you put on yourself. And for me, I, I, I knew I had eyes on me, but I didn't care because I was going to do what I did. The most pressure I felt was from me. Yeah, I wanted to perform the best and I pushed myself in practice and I pushed myself in drills at home and I and I did these things for myself, not because other not the outside source. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, Patrick having that release from his father must have felt well, must have felt great. But, you know, it's a high pressure game. All these guys are feeling pressures. Right. Yeah. Okay, I just have one more question before we wrap up. So. I guess to go back to what you said a few minutes ago about how you felt a little offended about me um, connecting hockey with this kind of dark side of hockey. So do you... I didn't feel offended because of hockey. I felt offended because of Canada. Okay. We're not exclusive. It's, it's sport in country. Yeah. So this, this, this dark side exists kind of like in all sports was what you were saying. I would and assume. It, it's not like a Canadian thing. So maybe did you think this book had anything to say about Canada or being a Canadian? No. I don't think so. I mean, I bet Other you... Other than hockey is our winter sport. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's uh, very cliche that it's a Canadian-born guy. Uh, or he's not even Canadian-born. It's a Canadian thought-after book. Yeah. But he's American. Yeah. With a Canadian dad, I guess. So, you know, it's just competitive sport with a mental illness father. Yeah. Yeah, I guess the one thing I would say about that is that our perception worldwide as Canadians is that we're, we're nice people, we're easygoing, we're super polite. And if there's anything that makes us not that, it, it might just be hockey. You know, that might be our one area where that happens, um, where you might see something like that and not think we fit that description. You know, if I had to say anything about this book in, in Canada, is, is just that he mentions a story about Gretzky as a kid moving away 
And, and, you know, there are lots of kids that do that. I think hockey is probably the only thing where a teenager moves away from home in this country. So, you know, if it mentioned anything like that, I guess it's just that, you know, if you're a teenager who excels at hockey, you know, you're probably going to be working harder than anyone else. Or any Olympic athlete. Yeah, perhaps. Wasn't the Ann Arbor team, those are teenagers moving away from home too, mm-hmm, I think. Mm-hmm. And I know Crosby went down to... Uh, to that private school down in Minnesota that everyone goes to. Yeah. I played with a couple guys from there that I think he was 14 when he moved at that point. Wow. So I think it happens a lot. I'm just hyper aware to hockey. You know, that's all I've been around. All the parents I've been around is hockey, hockey, hockey. So I'm assuming that it happens in other sports, but I could be wrong. But it's maybe more common when it comes to hockey. It is a competitive, violent sport. And I think that will get testosterone running through dads mm-hmm. and uh and moms at, even you see the moms at the hockey games sure, too and that sure. are i think i think we would be surprised in texas with football in the south with football i should say yeah you will i bet you you would see a lot of correlation yeah yeah i grew up in toronto and um it was all football all the time in my house i have two brothers and um oh yes my one brother was about to join the uh, Junior Argos, actually, uh, before he got his knee injuries. And so uh, my dad wasn't like John in the sense that, you know, he said to my brother, you're going to make it in football or else. But football was way more popular in our household than hockey was. Right. So I think it just ties directly to mental illness. Yeah. I mean, yeah. mental illness and competitive sport. Yeah. All right. We're running out of time here, so this brings us to the end of our episode. We want to thank our panelists, um, Patricia, Nick, and Hargis, for joining us today, um, and to all of our listeners for tuning in. And we invite you to tune in next week as we discuss uh, Brown by Kamal El Soleil. This has been the debut episode of Six for Summer, a radio book club created by the Prince George Public Library. This initiative is made possible by the Community Fund for Canada's 150th, a collaboration between the Prince George Community Foundation, the Government of Canada, and extraordinary leaders from coast to coast to coast. Find this week's book, Breaking Away, by Patrick O'Sullivan, on Overdrive for Libraries or in our print collection. This episode features music by Chad Van Galen, Warpaint, Stomp and Tom Connors, Feist, Johnny Fritz, and the brothers-in-law.
waiting on the temperature to drop and spending my days in a welding shop and drinking that beer and smoking those crops wishing i was fishing on the river top a pot-bellied flat-footed fool kicked out of the navy and kicked out of school now i'm a-working just like a mule daydreaming about women in a swimming pool man i've got nothing to do for the rest of my life but kick back and let it go by and if you listen to me one time, you can't tell me I ain't a stone-cold daddy-o till the day I die. I drive a Buick with a blistered hood, and I've got the tallest grass in the neighborhood. I spend my money like a poor man should, faster than the debt collector could. I need a cure for the stars in my eyes. I'm feeling bluer than the southern skies. And sure as hell, I always come to the surprise Anytime that I ever get recognized Man, I've got nothing to do for the rest of my life But kick back and let it go by And if you listen to me one time, you can't tell me I Ain't a stone-cold daddy-o till the day I die Stone-cold football and make it a success and some men race their motorbikes <laughs> while others stick to chess some even take up dueling which isn't very nice but we've got something much more grueling and we're keeping it on ice for we've got a night in Canada that's where all the players and spectators have a ball and while the voice of Buster Hewitt tells the listeners how we do it once more for the viewers let's have another brawl our hockey sticks are just the length to split a fellow's chin our skates are nicely sharpened to slash a fellow's chin we cruise across the blue line and if we've any luck we'll hit the rival goalie in the navel with the puck oh when we're on hockey night in canada hockey night in canada each canadian schoolboy knows that what we're doing's right for the players they're supporting teach the youngsters to be sporting they don't see too much hockey but we show them how to fight we've got the tv ratings the best you've ever seen oh yeah if war broke out on saturdays